So up next we're going to have Craig Elias from Shift Selling and he's a sales coach and a renowned sales expert and he's going to talk about trigger events and how you can use trigger events to close deals 80% of the time. Craig, how's it going? Lloyd, I'm well in yourself. I am excellent. So it's 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 been a while since we've connected, but we're both we both met in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and now you're still in Calgary, and I'm in SF. Yes, and I love San Francisco, man. I I missed being down there. Awesome, awesome. We should have you back again, but we have you. We have the second best thing. We have you on this podcast, and so great to have you, um, Craig. So this is this is day three of our three-day virtual conference, and it's entirely focused on sales. We had some great experts, and uh, we're glad to have you on here for 30 minutes. Craig, tell us more about yourself. Give us your backstory. How did you get involved in sales, get started, and, and get to where you are today? Yeah, so I think like many things in life, it's just luck or recognizing luck and doing something with it. I When I was in Toronto doing my first degree, I worked at a bar, restaurant slash bar, Earl's Tin Palace came out to Ontario, opened 10 restaurants, and all but one of them failed. And one was in what's called Young and Eligible. It's Young and Eglinton, right downtown, right downtown Toronto, but sort of pretty close to right downtown Toronto. And it turned into a big singles bar. And I worked there for a long time, and it just turned out a guy I worked with uh, became a headhunter. He came to me one day and said, Craig, I've got this job in inside sales. Would you like to apply? And I went, sure. So I applied for the job. I actually had a fight with the interviewer. Um, her name was Donna. I won't say her last name. But Donna, um, because I wanted to, the inside job because I wanted to go into outside sales. And she was like, we have a program. We take engineers. We turn them into outside salespeople. Um, so I thought I blew the interview. I got the offer. Took the inside sales job. I spent my first three paychecks on a suit. I think I lasted maybe six weeks in the job after I got that suit. And her husband came to me and said, I run outside sales, and I think you should be in outside sales. I've got an opening in Edmonton. Why don't you apply? And just every time I turned around, I just got lucky. And then one day it stopped. It was when I joined WorldCom. And I realized what may be lucky, but basically it was just luck being in front of the right people at the right time and just letting it happen everywhere I went. No, awesome. Great, uh, great start. So you, you're the f- creator of trigger events, and for over 20 years you've been a top performer using your trigger event strategies. You've been yep. named number one salesperson within six months of joining a company. So today's, today's podcast is themed how to win the sale on your first call. So let's start by telling us first, what are trigger events? So the way I look at trigger events, there are things, events, that trigger people to go from different stages in the buying process, their own buying process or buying cycle. And I think of people always being prospects, potential customers always being in one of three different buying stages. I call them buying modes. The first one's called status quo. These are people that are happy with what they have, and they see no reason to change. The second one is on the other end of the spectrum is when people are act, excuse me, actively involved in the process of searching for alternatives. 
What I realize is there's something in the middle. It is called a window of dissatisfaction. These are the people that are unhappy with what they have, but they're so busy solving other problems, they haven't started doing anything about this problem yet. And my 80% close ratio was when I was always the first person there. Well, it turns out there is a series of events, trigger events I call them, that move people between these different buying modes. The first event makes people want to change. Think of these as funnel fillers. The second event gives people more time to look at what you've got or the money to buy it. These are what are called funnel movers. They move things down the funnel. And the last event is when people can justify making the purchase. And these are what I call funnel shakers, and they shake something out of the funnel turn someone into a customer. So these are there are three specific different types of events as people go through these different stages. Awesome. Great stuff. So uh, tell tell us more about this this you know I've heard you say this often. When I got in first my average close ratio is about eighty percent. You've said it right now. Um yep. how Dive deeper into how can one get in first, perhaps some examples. Yeah, so it's funny. So my own success rate is 80%, and that was prior to before I knew what I was really doing. The research by Forrester says the average is actually 74%. So I wasn't, I wasn't actually that much better than the industry when it came to being in first. But being in first really comes from one of three different things. The first thing, and what I actually did for – almost 20 years that got me so lucky was I had a very specific approach to building relationships with people I wanted to have as customers. And the whole approach was about around being what is called their emotional favorite. I wanted to be the person they would rather do business with. So very often what would happen when they had their second events, when they could afford the time to look or afford the money to buy, I was always the first person they phoned. So every time I'm seeing a customer, I was like Columbo. You know, the way he would solve the mystery was always that last question at the interview. He'd be about ready to leave, and he'd turn around and say, I have one last question. And I was very similar. And my one last question at the end of every sales call was always, forget what I do for my current employer. What's at the top of the list that you just can't get to? What's the problem you wish you could find a solution to but just haven't found a satisfactory solution to? And they would tell me of all these things that they wanted. And I would then go about finding ways to help them solve that problem. And they, because I helped make them look good, would always want to try and find a way to return the favor. So for me, that's my number one way. did that for almost 20 years. The second way is actually why a lot of people belong to these networking groups. And it's all about being referred in by somebody else. So having good relationships with somebody who has as customers those you want as customers and letting them introduce you when the time is right. But you have to be specific because the hard part is when you ask for someone for an introduction, more times than not, they'll introduce you to someone who doesn't need your stuff or someone who's so late in the buying process that you can't change what it is that they want and you can't position yourself as the favorite. So you have to, when you're being referred, be very specific around what you Ask for. I don't want to be introduced to a new VP of a technology firm. Sorry, I don't want to be introduced to any VP of a technology firm. I want to be introduced to someone who's a new VP of a technology firm. 
because the data basically says that any new decision maker, VP of almost any type or C-level, makes 80% of their major decisions within the first 90 days in the job. So being referred is the second way. The third way is you can listen. So you can listen on social media. You can create saved searches on LinkedIn. You can subscribe to a service like what I have called Avention that triggers me whenever certain decision makers are new in their job. They actually focus on press releases. And I like the press release piece because the data that I have crunched tells me that anybody who's a VP or higher takes on average 141.6 days to update their LinkedIn profile. But they make all the major changes in the first 90 days. Now, that's just the average. There are some decision makers that do it sooner, so there's still value in these saved searches on LinkedIn. It just turns out that having a service you can use that tells you through all the announcements made through press releases is better because the data I've crunched on press releases says that when a decision maker is new in a job, it takes 18.1 days for their job to be announced in the press, and you, of course, want to get there earlier. So either have a stellar relationship and focus on those who have or who will have money, authority, and influence, get referred to those people, or listen for press releases and phone people. Don't hide behind emails. If there is one thing that drives me around the freaking band is all these people that prospect through email and they don't put a phone number in their signature. Like I've got two minutes. I can call you back, but you won't let me. Then I'll go find someone else. So those are the three ways. Awesome. No, great, great stuff. So um, Let's let's talk about go deeper into into lead generation here because that's that's some of the, that's the hardest thing that early stage entrepreneurs have and, and even when you're new in sales right so what what are some of your top tips for generating leads so I'm a big fan of job changes job change job change job change and they actually come in two flavors so the the first one is a VP or a hire that's new in their job. And one of the reasons I like to focus on VPs is because they have three things. They have money or access to a budget. They have the authority to spend it, and they have influence inside the organization. So what that means in general is those three events, I want to change, I can afford to change, I can justify the change. If you focus on VPs or higher, more times than not, they don't actually have to have the second or third event. They just want to change. They've got the money. They've got the authority. They've got the influence. Stuff just happens. So I focus on VPs, people that are new in their job. And every time I find someone who's new in their job, I realize it's actually more than one opportunity. It actually creates several. And I'm going to use the Beatles as an example. So you find out this guy who you may have done business with in the past. right? Let's call him uh, John. And John was a customer. He's gone to somewhere new. The first thing you need to do is find out where he went. You need to follow him. And you're going to have a conversation. Hey, John, you were a customer in the past. I'm curious if you'd like to be our customer again, something along those lines. The second thing you need to do is you need to figure out who's the person that used to be in that job. Because that person has moved on. 
That person has more money, more authority, and more influence. And when they get to their new job, they're actually very likely to change vendors. So you've got to figure out who was it that John replaced. Let's say in this case, it was Paul. So you've got John, you've got Paul. That's two opportunities. Number three is when John leaves, you want to go talk to John's replacement. In this case, his name would be Ringo. You go talk to Ringo, and there's really only one key question you need to ask Ringo before you start anything else. And for me, the number one question you should ask is, where did you come from? Because that gives you an indication into an opening that nobody else may even know of, and you then get to go talk to Ringo's replacement, which I think, if I remember correctly, his name was George. So those are four. What you can do, and sometimes this happens to us, is that you've got John, the first contact, and he's a customer, and he gives you a little bit of business, but you want more. And he won't introduce you to his boss, and you can't go around him, because if you piss him off, he'll cut you off. So, But once John's gone, you can actually go to his boss. And you can talk to his boss and talk about the things that you're doing and say you'd like to try and find a way to earn more business. So every single job change creates four, if not five, different opportunities. And I crunched some numbers. So here's what I know. Um, U.S. Census data tells me that about 3% of the population changes jobs every single month. If you're going to focus on VPs of sales, if you just have a list of 100 companies you want to get into – January, three people changed jobs. So that's three opportunities. Um, they took the place of three people. You follow up and found who they are. That's six. So January, you have six opportunities. February, you get three more new ones. Again, you find out who did they replace. So that's six. Plus, maybe the job that John had has now been filled. Now you've got nine. So every month, you end up with more and more opportunities. And if you do that for a year... By the time you get to January, you've got 39 new opportunities in your funnel from the original list of 100. And if you add up all the leads you created in the first year, you actually end up with 270. If you do it for two years, by the time you get to the uh, 24th month, you now have 75 opportunities every month from that original list of 100 companies you wanted to get into. And if you add up all the leads, again, because as they grow, it ends up being 970 by two years. Now, that assumes you only actually talk to one person or focus on one title in an account. But the research actually says that if you leverage two, you're actually three times more likely to get into an account. So instead of just doing VPs of sales, maybe you do VPs of marketing or VP of sales operations. And all of a sudden, that little list of 100 companies can create hundreds if not thousands of opportunities. That's my favorite way. That's number one. The second favorite way is I used to keep track of all my key competitors in my accounts, and I would keep track of the salespeople in those accounts. And I would know that whenever a salesperson left, I would go, wow, so that person who was the incumbent probably had a pretty good relationship with decision makers in the account, and that's how they got all these opportunities. And because they understood the accounts, they understood their expectations, 
so they didn't piss them off very often. And even if they did disappointment, disappoint them or piss them off, because they had a really good relationship, people would complain and say, hey, Lloyd, stop being stupid. Go fix this. And they got a chance to fix it. But the person who takes their place doesn't understand people's expectations and is much more likely to actually disappoint them. And when they disappoint disappoint them, because they don't have a relationship with decision makers, the decision makers actually aren't likely to complain. And I saw research not that long ago that says, if I remember the number, I think it's 28% of all vendor switches are triggered by a change in account managers. So what I used to do is keep track of my biggest competitor, who the salesperson or salespeople were in the accounts that I wanted to get some major growth. And then when those salespeople left, that's when I would start spending more time on that account. And I have one specific example that I love to share. I, when I took over, I got hired as a senior salesperson for a distributor in Vancouver for electronic components. And I looked across my territory, and of course, because I'm the most senior guy, they go, we want growth. And I'm like, where am I going to find growth? The problem is sometimes big companies don't grow all that fast. Well, I found a little account on Vancouver Island, and they were doing $60,000 with us. And what I learned very quickly is they were doing $10 million with our three competitors. So I simply said, well, I'm going to go there, and I'm just going to start going there every other week. So I'd leave my house at about 5.30 in the morning, get to the ferry terminal about 7.15, catch the 8 o'clock ferry. Um, I forget how it all worked out, but there was like an hour and a half plus to get across, plus a drive on the other side. And I went to these people and said, I'm going to be here every other week. And they're like, never going to happen. Nobody does that. Well, that's what I started doing. But what I realized in the process is these guys, who are all engineers, left a mountain bike. So I started taking my mountain bike over, and we would mountain bike uh, in the dump, around the dump over there. Not much of a mountain bike ride, but in those rides, I learned that they've always wanted to go to Whistler, and I used to go to Whistler mountain biking like every other weekend. So I arranged a trip. 21 of them came over, and then not long after that, there was a change in account managers for one of my competitors, and we went from 60 grand to $3 million in almost 90 days. Wow, that is awesome. So those are my best ways. That's that's uh, that is just awesome. So um, let's let's go into this one sales analysis over analyzing both wins and losses. So you're a proponent of just analyzing your wins. Why is that? So I, I'm actually not a proponent of analyzing just your wins. I'm actually a proponent of analyzing just your best wins. Um, but here's and here's the reason why. Uh, you're down in the valley, so I'm sure you see every now and again a person named Guy Kawasaki. Guys, one of the things that Guy said to me years ago that used to drive me crazy when I had my own startup in the valley was, hope is not a strategy. And everything I said, he's like, that's hope. Hope is not a strategy. When you analyze the business you lose, the problem is very often people won't tell you the truth. And you're hoping, again, hope is not a strategy, you're hoping you can figure out how you can win next time around. What's amazing to me is if uh, you let a salesperson analyze business they lose, they're always going to say it was price. But if you don't give them a very structured process around this analysis, when they win, they're always going to say they won 
because of their relationship. They never lose because they had a bad relationship. They never win because pricing was great. But they lose because pricing was bad, and they win because they have a great relationship. I'm a much bigger fan of analyzing just the deals you win. But not, not only that, just the deals you win that happened fast. You got to a decision maker. They paid pretty close to full price and or were willing to be a reference or give you testimonials. So from my perspective, they have to have three of those four. Decided fast, you got to a decision maker, paid full price, and if you asked, gave you a reference or were willing to give you a testimonial. And the reason I focus on my wins is it turns on this thing called selective perception. When you buy a new car, what do you see all over the road, Lloyd? Myself. <laughs> you see the exact same car, right? All over the place. If women get pregnant, they see pregnant women. You're on crutches, you see people on crutches. So what happens when you ask the right questions in your one sales analysis, you start seeing all the people that could be really good customers. So I have four questions I ask in this one sales analysis. You win a deal, the paperwork is signed, you're not putting the deal at risk. There's basically four questions. First question is what event or what events, you might want to say what changes, led up to this purchase. And when you ask that first question, what happens very often is they tell you of the second event, the one where they could afford to change or had more time to look at what you've got. But we want to figure out is what was the first event? So I've learned you have to ask question number two. Question number two is when did those events or when did that event happen? And when you ask them that, if you listen very often, they'll tell you of the first event that made them actually want to change. So that's question number two. Question number three is what made you choose us? I'm not a fan of asking why questions. I didn't say why did you choose us. What I've been told and what I believe is that when you ask why questions, you make people defensive. So I've learned to ask the question, what made you choose us? And what I'm listening for is verbs. I'm listening for things that the customer tells me about the impact that I had or they thought I was going to have around what they do. I chose you because of this. I chose you because of that. But we're listening for the verbs. And the verbs are important because the people who buy from you can do this amazing thing called mental gymnastics. We as salespeople have content. They have context. So we tell them stuff more times than not, describing our product using nouns, which is not the right way to sell. But we do that. They have their own context. They did. They do the mental gymnastics, and they understand how all of a sudden you can actually make a difference to their business. But the problem is not everybody can do the mental gymnastics. So when you ask question number three, what you're doing is you're taking the mental gymnastics out of the heads of people that are smart enough to do this, and then when you understand what made them choose you or why they became your customer, you can then spoon-feed that to everybody else in the marketplace using the exact same verbs that they described to you. My last question is around simplicity. I have seen data that says a third of any market chooses the vendor who is easiest to do business with. So a third of the people just chose someone who was really easy 
to do business with, easier to buy from. So my last question is how can we make it easier to become our customer? And when you ask those questions, you get the answers that help these other customers, prospects, that have these events to jump out at you. You know exactly what to say, so you pique their interest, and you know exactly what you have to do to make it really easy for them to become your customer. Awesome. So what what are some ways, and, and we have six more minutes, what are some ways you've seen companies uh, make it really easy for customers to buy? Um, so a lot of stuff is related to, you spend the old days with e-commerce. So anything you can do to collect it, and it depends upon businesses. So I'm going to give you one example. Um, one of my favorite examples actually is a furniture company. So what, what would happen is, with an office furniture company, people would walk into the showroom, and the lady that I actually coached didn't like being in the showroom, but she learned that being in the showroom was actually very valuable because she learned to ask the question, what changed and made you come in today? She was listening for events. And then what she would do before people left, she would have them fill in a credit application. So when it came time to buy and someone all of a sudden got themselves in trouble and they had to make a decision right away because they'd already been approved from a credit perspective but hadn't been approved in other places, they went with her because it was easier for them to buy from her than it was to buy from somebody else. The next thing for me is understanding that, that people need to justify their purchase to other people. So how do you make it easy for somebody to justify it? to their superiors, their subordinates, you know, depending on the scenario, maybe their spouse. And it turns out that there's only five reasons that people justify a purchase. And it's what I call RIPES, R-I-P-E and S. And I'm going to start with the one at the bottom. So if you're writing this down, you write it down top to bottom, not left to right. R-I-P-E and S. I'm going to start at the bottom. Last one at the bottom, simplicity or time. People can justify because it was just simpler to buy from you than somebody else. Uh, the E stands for expenses. So how do you find a way to lower someone's expenses? Get the same amount of stuff done but spend less money doing it. P stands for productivity. Get the, spend the same amount of money but get more stuff done. Some of the justification, though, is not just to, them, to their superior or subordinate or spouse. Sometimes it's to themselves. So I actually stands for image. If you help people look good on their resume or their LinkedIn profile or to other people, that's a reason they will buy from you. That's how they justify to themselves, not so much to others. The last thing is R, and it's risk. And what people will do is they'll buy from you because it's less risky to buy from you than it is to actually buy from somebody else. And that's how I would do that. That is just fantastic. Let's uh, let's all make it easier for people to buy from us. Thank you, Craig. Great pleasure. And let's grab a drink the next time you're in San Francisco or if I'm in Calgary. Lloyd, I look forward to it. Have an awesome week. You too. Bye.